So really, it's not simply about giving information and giving facts. It's about making these emotional appeals and listening to the values that are underlying the resistance to vaccination. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. So there we have it from Meryn McKinnon, an academic at the ANU, the Australian National University here in Canberra. Vaccination communication. How are we going to convince people all around the world that this is in their best interest? The COVID-19 vaccine is on the way and so begins one of the most important government communication campaigns in recent memory. Governments must rely on effective communication to get millions of people to take the step to put a needle in their arm for the safety and community of not just themselves and their families, but their communities. So Merrin McKinnon has been examining this very challenge and she wrote a paper a couple of years ago, back in 2018, Vaccination Communication Strategies, What We Have Learned and Lost in 200 Years. Merrin is a senior lecturer and researcher at the Centre for Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. She started her career as a marine scientist before moving into the field of science communication. Merrin is one of Australia's leading experts on helping scientists and policymakers to communicate science issues with not only clarity, but with impact. And her research focuses on how and why the public responds to scientific issues in a range of disciplines from public health to conservation. She appears regularly on ABC Radio to discuss the big issues in science. And recently, she was the host of the Science Communication Panel at the inaugural GovComs Festival, which was organised by us here at Content Group, and that was an amazing success. But she joins me in the studio. Merrin, thanks very much for joining us on GovComs. My absolute pleasure. Uh, And thanks for hosting the science panel at the GovComs Festival. That was was fun. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll do it all again in 2021. But as I said in my intro, this is the big challenge, isn't it? This is the big task. We now have the vaccine, but it's striking the, well, to me, as, as a novice, that there are so many people who would say, eh, maybe not. For, but just to go back perhaps to start with your paper and what you've learned, you know, looking back, what are the big issues around vaccination communication? It's really, really interesting. So this paper that I did with a colleague, um, she was very much into the history of science communication. So she was looking at all of the publications that came from, you know, the, the motherland uh, that were given to the to the colonial settlers, so invaders rather. Uh, and back then they were really worried about smallpox, yep. and that was that was you know the disease du jour. And the kinds of information that they used to include from the Surgeon General, who was you know their Department of Health, I suppose, uh, basically making these incredibly emotional appeals and lamenting the stupidity of the parents if they allow their children to suffer. It was really full-on reading. Uh, And you compared that to the communication which we've adopted in the last, I don't know, uh, 20, 40 years. So it's like, well, here's the science, this is what works this is what you should do. And for a lot of people, yeah, that's okay. They're they're quite prepared to accept that scientific evidence. But for many others, 
there is that sense of, well, you know, science isn't perfect. There's lots of things. There's been lots of things, particularly in medication, where things have gone wrong. So thalidomide is one example. Uh, and so people are a little bit more reticent to go, oh, okay, you, you, this is what you're telling me to do, sure. Um, so really, it's not simply about giving information and giving facts. It's about making these emotional appeals and listening to the values that are underlying the resistance to vaccination. And we're starting to see, particularly in Victoria, they're really starting to go back to those emotional appeals. So hearing from parents who have had or have lost children who were too young to be vaccinated, uh, but were... Um, struck by a vaccine preventable illness because others hadn't vaccinated so that they, they didn't have that herd immunity around them mm. so yeah it really is getting past that I'll give people information and they'll do the right thing yeah uh, humans were a special we're a very special species we won't do that yeah so if you were in a government department and not this pod, this podcast is listened to by government communications all around the world and they're all sitting there right now thinking exactly the same thing. How do we balance this sort of fact, science, emotion? How do we pull it together? How do we pull a program together? So you're the advisor, you've walked in, where do we start with this particular challenge? First of all is accepting that if a vaccine is going to require something like 100% to be effective, then start looking for another vaccine because you're <laughs> never going to get everybody on board. So what what is the percentage of compliance that you need in order to be effective? You're going to have people who are going to accept it, no problem. You're going to have some people who will never accept it, no matter what you say or do. Don't waste your time with that. That, that is a really small tail end of the population. So if you remember, if you, if you visualise rather, a bell curve, yep. you've got you know the two very narrow ends. So the, the ones who are already on board yep. and the, the ones... The early who, adopters. Yep. yep. And then the laggards the who laggards. will never be on board, yep. ever. Yep. Devote your energies to that big chunk in the middle right? because they're the ones who are like, oh, I don't know, I hear all of these things, I don't know what to, what to do, and, you know, my friend says this, but I've, you know, if, I, if I do that, it could have the same level of protection, I don't know who to trust. Yeah. So what you really want to think about is who do people trust? And there are lots of, um, like Edelman Trust Barometer is a great source of, you know, who, who do people trust? And the most trusted sources are someone like me, not me personally, but someone like yourself. So you have your close friends, family members, um, maybe even work colleagues, people who share a lot of the same characteristics, identities, values as you do. And they are the people who are going to be particularly influential then, you know, there's academics and scientists. Um, but realistically, most people are going to be convinced by someone who, who they can relate to. Then there's the, you know, I want to look after myself. Or, and we started to see some of this in the messaging about the COVID behaviours, you know, self-isolate. A lot of people weren't doing that just for them. But you started to see a shift in some of the rhetoric saying, you know, protect others, you know, yep. stay together for Absolutely. your community. Absolutely, yeah, for the community. Yeah. Yep. And so using those kinds of strategies, making it, it's a, it's a moral obligation that you have as a responsible member of the community this is this is a shared responsibility that we all have. By looking after yourself, you are also looking after others. So uh, taking that, you know, this is all about the individual. No, it's about the bigger picture. It's about looking after those who can't look after themselves. Yeah. So if I was then 
But again, sort of looking back at it from a, a macro level to start with, this is an issue for all the community. Absolutely. And, and all ages. And so how then do you communicate into that vast uh, ocean of different types of people with different interests, with different levels of knowledge, with different accesses to technology, with different interests? How do you find a way to, to influence those people knowing that it's going to be people like me or like my family who I trust? How do I get a message to those people such that you can you know, virally spread the, the you know, the, the, the message about the importance of the vac- vaccination. For sure. And I think probably the, the immediate answer is you can't do it alone. So just as it's going to take the community responding as a community to protect one another, it's going to take governments operating with the community as partners uh, to get that message across. So there are so many um, community organisations who have all of the connections, all of the the, the spokespeople, the local community representatives uh, who have those networks that governments are going to need to access and they understand best what it's like for those communities. So the very real challenges that they might have um, in retaining paid employment um, if they go back into lockdown or, um, you know, the difficulties that they might have in accessing Uh, the information about the vaccine, what information channels these people do actually use. So it's about partnering with those community groups who have those grassroots levels connections across the country and working with them as a partner in communication. So it's very much not about big government coming down and saying, thou shalt do this, but rather work with us to help us protect everyone in the country equally. Okay, so it is that notion of, of co-creation and collaboration, but really starting from an endpoint of this is what we have to do. How can we work together to identify the solution as opposed to we've done the thinking, here it is, um, you know, here's some materials to distribute to, to your people. That takes time though, doesn't it? It does. Um, but I think it, it's not even just a matter of doing this within a, a vaccination context just for COVID. Yes, COVID is is putting a, a big time vice on everything. But if you build these connections with communities now, it is something that is going to reap dividends for you in the long term, because it, it is very much about these communities are going to feel like their point of view is acknowledged, respected, heard. And for a lot of, a lot of groups, that res- any resistance to new ideas or um, you know, new initiatives can be reduced or removed simply by having their their point of view heard and understood. Mm-hmm. And so even with a lot of, um, you know, vaccine-hesitant uh, parents out there, it's not necessarily that they are against a vaccine. It's a, they are against the fact that somebody else is removing their, um, you know, Agency. Right agency, that's mm. the word, yeah, as, as a parent yeah. to be able to make that decision for their child. Yeah. So it's just you may not get everybody on board, but if you can build that level of mutual trust and listening, then you still retain that common ground to continue having conversations. That's a key point, I think, isn't it, is that people may not agree, they might not like it, but if you have taken the time and you have respected them, um, they're more likely to accept and be compliant to, to, you know, a direction 
because at least they feel like they've been, you know, genuinely engaged. Absolutely. And it will reap benefits as well because even when you're having those conversations, even if there isn't that level of agreement, you can still leave with that insight of, okay, this isn't going to work for these reasons. So if we change our communication strategies, materials and resources, and we start to do this instead, then we're actually going to target the people that we that we dearly want to reach. Yeah. So it's it's an investment of time and energy and resources, but it's also yeah. you're getting more insight rather than just sort of throwing a whole bunch of stuff out and hoping that some of it sticks. Yeah, and it's not as if it's the last time that you'll be back to talk to that group about something else again. So I should hope not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that investment made over time helps to build the trust. You know, the, the key the key word around that. So, what what's your general view then around trust. Um, here in Australia, and it's, it's different in different parts of the world because of the response to COVID, um, trust was very, very low at the beginning of this year. Um, a competent response, it would have to be said, uh, to COVID has seen those trust measures go back up. So government is now sort of much more um, trusted by, by the people. How, how, how do you influence trust? Is it through performance? Is it through competence? How is it that we can build stronger levels of trust with, with citizens? Certainly, certainly competence helps. Um, but I think taking the time to invest in the community that you are there to serve, uh, I think if you only ever turn up somewhere when you want something, then communities will very, very quickly pick up on that. And I think the, the mutual exchange, because a lot of these communities, if you look at um, Indigenous populations in Australia, they have fared extraordinarily well during COVID because of the way they have responded and banded together in their community. They know what works. They, kn they know what's effective. There are, there's no one source of knowledge through all of this. So being open to the ideas and input of others, and I think it, it really is just sitting down and having a, that honest equal level conversation, not, you know, I know everything, I'm going to tell you what to do, but actually listening as well and saying, okay, you've had some success here. What did you do? Why did it work? How can we help you to amplify that in future? Or how can, how can we work with you to achieve this kind of success in other areas? Okay, so let's say we've been successful in doing that, that we've taken the time and effort, and as you say, and it's a, it's a lovely way you described it, this vice of time. So let's just say we've got through that, we've done that, we've, we've done the listening, we've got some great insights. How then do we distill whether it's um, that balance, as you say, between emotion and fact and science as we're going through different contextual elements? Because things change and they change quickly. And so as you exactly as you mentioned before, you know, Victor, the Victorian government here in Australia has taken a particular approach, but then they've had to pivot as consumer, uh, you know, citizen sentiment has changed. So how do you go about making those decisions as to, you know, which rein to, which lever to pull? It really is an, an organic, dynamic thing. And, and the nature of conversation... Oh, everyone's got a, a family, you've been sitting around having a lovely conversation, suddenly someone takes something out of context and you're having a very different conversation. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, hang on, how do we get here? <laughs> so it's, it is just about being actively involved. It's yeah. not just sort of dropping that down, having a you know, sort of a stun and run approach. Yeah. It's about you know, sharing something and saying, okay, so, and then watching, like act, doing active evaluation and monitoring, seeing what that response is. Um, probably marketing companies would most likely have it 
down to a fine art because they they would be constantly monitoring performance, seeing what people are engaging with the most and yeah. and what they're not responding to, and just being able to to tweak and push those those communication strategies in different directions in response to what you're seeing from from your intended audience. Mm. And we and we have this sort of um, massively. Um, evolving uh, market for the way that we, we, we now receive and send and create information. You know, effectively, we are now all in the media business. We mm -hmm. all have these mobile devices that enable us to receive, uh, to send, to create. Uh, and there are massive platforms um, that then enable, you know, disinformation, misinformation, Again, what's your advice or what's your observation of the challenges and opportunities of these platforms and technologies that we now can use to, you know, reach, influence and, and engage audiences? Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's a, a blessing and a curse. And the, the World Health Organization quickly classified us as being in an infodemic as mm. well. The sheer volume of information that's coming out, some of it's great, some of it is complete and utter rubbish. But how do people actually evaluate this? Yeah. I, I keep saying this word, but it does come back to trust. You know, who, which organisation do I trust the most? Who's most consistent with what they're telling me? Who's most responsive to my questions, to my needs? Um, and I guess the only way that you can continue to build that trust is to be present, to continue to give information that your target community wants and needs and being responsive to that, um, you know, engaging with them, answering questions. Um, and I think the other thing to remember is that while social media is incredibly useful, it still does not capture everybody. Not so you, you have to be mindful of there, there are those who are quite happily not on social media and you know, maybe they're better off for it. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's about being present and it's it's really interesting. If you correct misinformation by saying it again, sometimes you're also reinforcing it. So if you are going out there correcting it, don't restate that misinformation. So, you know, someone saying that uh, if you if you drink bleach, this will this will cure COVID. This is not true. So don't even say this first part. You just sort of say the best way to prevent and the, yeah, prevent or treat COVID is to do X, Y, and Z. So don't even engage with the misinformation by giving it that additional airtime. Okay, so that's that's a, a uh, an ideal strategy or tactic is to just ignore it. Is it? Is, is Not that necessarily. The way? You, you can address it, but without repeating it. Okay. So yeah. So, so you, give me an example of that. Um. Oh, I thought I just did. <laughs> you want well, give me one? another one. Okay. Yeah, give me another um, one. Uh, so what was it? Uh, there was one that was, oh, I saw this on Facebook. If you drink really hot water, yeah. then that will kill the virus in your throat. Right. So rather than saying, you know, check this out, this guy is saying if you drink really hot water, yeah. you just say, okay, there are lots of strategies of how to prevent contracting COVID circulating. Here are the best evidence-informed strategies to do so. Here, here are the top five things you can do. Got it. And almost now I'm going to sound really trite, but if you give people three to five dot points, here's the top five or here are the, here are the five things you should know. Just give them something really short, snappy, that they can just 
give them something that they can do. Because I think a lot of this, you feel, and climate's probably a little bit the same as well, you feel paralysed by the enormity of it. So yes, if, that's you, right. yeah, yeah, if yeah. you break it down into little chunks, you know, this is what you actually can do and it will make a difference to you, to your neighbour, to your family, to society, then you know, giving them those really simple steps that's like, oh, okay, that, that's more manageable, I can handle that. So in terms then, but around something like COVID, does that work for like health messages where you actually don't want people to sort of necessarily do something? You want them to be informed of a particular way that they can ultimately then make their choices? Yeah. So then you can sort of point them towards, you know, maybe that is one of your dot points, be informed. Right. So you know, here, are some, here are some great sources, sources not necessarily your own organisation. So, you know, we're not, we're not going to position ourselves as the be all and end all. Here is what the, the top bodies are saying in other countries around the world or in other states or in other cities. Um, so you can, certainly, you can certainly look at that. Yeah. There's some old research oh, now and very different very different context, but I think the idea is the same. So this was in hotel rooms and they were looking at the environmental messaging of, you know, if you hang your towel on the towel rack, you use it again another time. If you leave it on the floor, that'll be replaced. So they tried different levels of messaging just to see what influence that had on behaviour. And when they used messages that said, um, you know, gave figures or gave them something to compare themselves to, like 86% of guests in this hotel will reuse their towel. So if you want to join them, do this. So, so give them a comparator. What's everybody else doing? What are the rates of immunisation? Um, yeah, how many people in, in this place are actually going and doing it? Got it. Yeah, I like that. I like that as a positive way of being people able to, okay, so I can see that it's, you know, this is a bigger issue and I, I, I do have a role to play in it. Definitely. So then just in terms of it though, like, again, looking back through that, the, the paper that you did and looking at the, the 200 years of, of vaccination, what were some of the other things that came out that, that struck you that would be relevant to government communicators now that they need to make sure that they're thinking about um, and that they're incorporating into their, uh, their, either their messaging or their channel selection or, or other things? Probably the dominant one is the fact is the facts don't work. Um, If you look at smoking, for example, unless you have been living under a rock, it's pretty hard to avoid the the very strong message that smoking is bad for your health. Mm. And people know that, but people still do smoke. So it's not necessarily about the absence of information, which is is driving this behaviour. It's something else. So is it um, a cultural ideal? Is it a, a social environment that they're in? So it's... Look at the context that the information is going into. What are the other influencing factors there? Um, And certainly I think trying just to have that, the very top-down, you know, just do what we tell you, that's not going to work either. But likewise, going too far into that emotional, that can cause some people to to shut down as well. And certainly if if you want to look at you know, almost being punitive or yep. um, creating shame, that doesn't work either. I mean, that had a tremendously bad impact um, oh, in the 80s when they had the Grim Reaper yep. HIV 10-pin um, bowling yeah. uh, campaign. That terrified the pants off everybody in Australia and that worked really well because we didn't have social media then and all you had was free-to-wear TV. So it was 
seen by a huge portion of the population. But HIV AIDS wasn't a big problem in Australia at the time, but that created such a level of fear in the community that it actually adversely affected the population who was most um, susceptible to, to infection. And the consequences of that rolled out for years and possibly still are rolling out. So <laughs> it sounds I'm really asking you to walk a very fine line, but it, yeah. it is just that matter of watching what happens, seeing what's working and not not necessarily even in your own backyard. Look at practice from around the world, find out what works and then you talk to each other. I think this is this is obviously a global issue and I think it's going to take a, a global sharing of information and ideas and approaches to, to find a solution. Mm. Because, again, I suppose it's that issue, isn't it, is that all the way, the granular issues, you know, people people are different, communities are different, um, cities are different, countries are different, and then there are all of the cultural layers and uh, environmental layers. Like, it, it's so complex that it's very hard to say, oh, well, okay, well, let's pull it out and here it is. Mm. Here's the template approach. But, again, what you're suggesting to people is, you know, use your best insights, gather your best available evidence and data in order to influence the priority audiences that you're seeking to, assemble your um, program of information and the various channels and content that you've decided and then test and learn um, as, as you go. And, and perhaps that is one of the great advantages of technology now is that it's much easier um, to create and very quickly to respond and get something up and out um, and again, to look at it and, and how it, it's performing. Yeah, absolutely. Anything you put online, you can you can tweak within seconds or minutes and yep. rather than having to, you know, lay everything out in hard copy, go and get another print run. If you can watch how things are going, yep. tweak them and re-release them straight away. So, yep. yeah. So into, were you surprised when you started to see, you know, the vaccinations, we've had this, you know, dreadful period, you know, probably not so bad, well, you know, certainly not so great in Victoria and here in Australia, but, you know, comparatively in Australia we've, we've, we've done, you know, pretty mm. well. But looking around the world, you know, it's been a catastrophe really. Um, um, have you been surprised that the, then given the depth of the crisis that then the response is, well, actually I'm not sure that I'm going to go down this um, vaccination path early in such big numbers? Were you surprised by that or was it something that you looked at and you thought, yeah, that's um, sort of about right? I can see the point because in a lot of the media coverage you do get, there is that it's fast-tracked. It, this is an expedited process. Yeah. This is, and normally vaccine development would take you know, close to ten years. We're really truncating that, mm. and oh. and I guess that with it also comes that cautionary element of, well, yeah, okay, we. It's, it's showing results here, but we don't know. This is with a, this has been tested with a very specific population. We don't know if it's going to work with people over the age of 75. We don't know what the impacts are on pregnant women. We don't know uh, what's going to happen with... Um, you know, people with pre-existing conditions. These are all things that we haven't tested for yet. And even above and beyond all of this, a vaccine is not a silver bullet. So the, I think there's probably that understandable element of reticence of, oh, there's a lot of I don't know associated with this. Now, I guess we're used to certainty in inverted commas in medicine, yep. but everything in in science and in, and in medicine, it's as certain as we can get it at that point in time. The knowledge is always evolving. It's always changing. And our, what we do is always adapting on yep. top of that. So people are comfortable with uncertainty. 
like if you're giving an estimate of figures and, and saying, well, you know, this, this is our best understanding at the time. People are comfortable with that. But I think when you're asking them to put their own body on the line or their you know, families, their families then yeah. it's kind of like, oh, maybe I'll just, I just want to wait and see. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I, taking all of this together, I think, um, yes, the vaccine is going to be important, but I think the, the other messaging that goes hand in hand with that, which is everything that we've heard throughout 2020 ad nauseum, is you know, all the preventative steps that people can take as well. But how do you then take the edge off, you know, the, you know, the speed? Because the speed message was a good message um, that we're moving quickly, we're doing this, for, but now the un- perhaps the unintended consequence is, is as we were successful in communicating the success of this, that what we've done is in fact increase the numbers of people who are thinking, eh, maybe maybe not for me. I think we're starting to see some of it and there's there's parallels with the, the mad cow disease um, back in the UK several years ago. Oh, it feels like forever ago now. But, and I think we saw it in the US as well, like the former presidents and the very visible high-profile people going in to get it done themselves. I think that's showing people like me or yep. high-ranking people, the ones, who are, the ones who are telling me to go do it, are they doing it themselves? I want to know. I want to see that. Yeah. So are you just telling us to do it but then you, you're, you're doing something different? I'm, yeah. I'm not into that. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it's that, you know, it, it could almost be that a different communication of, you know, show, don't tell. Yeah. You must wake up every morning, do you, at the moment, sort of fascinated by this and watching it really closely to see, you know, how how things are evolving and how things are changing? Sometimes, yeah. Other times I just think, I, I just can't today. <laughs> I have to turn it off. No more. Uh, yeah, it's definitely been um, for our discipline, so for science communication and I think for a lot of other disciplines now as well, sort of looking at it going, huh, Communication really is a thing here, isn't it? It's like, uh-huh, yeah, sure is. Come, sit down, let's chat. It's, it's interesting though, isn't it? Um, because, you know, I would um, completely agree that all of a sudden people have gone, oh, actually, we better get this right. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, you know, the OECD have now decided after however many years that they're going to start to study government communication, of which health communication is a, you know, vitally important part of it. So that's great. So contextually, great, we, you know, we move on. Um, but... I think then perhaps from a science communication point of view, more broadly, you know, the comeback of the expert, the comeback of the scientists, you know, the fact that these, uh, you know, scientists have stood up and carried the message and they've become trusted, whereas perhaps, you know, four or five years ago there was a cynicism about, you know, experts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, you know, part of, you know, President Trump's election was seen as, a reaction to, you know, these people telling us what to do, you know, yep. the, the experts. But now we seem to have, you know, you know the men and women in, in lab coats have now come back and, and they're now trusted figures and admired figures because they are the ones who, who gave us the advice in difficult times. So are you seeing a sort of in science communication uh, a recovery of, of the expert and a valuing of, of, of expertise and evidence? I think, yeah, there was a, a definite period where across the board... Um, all experts, didn't matter what background, scientific or otherwise, was kind of like, yeah, you've had your time, shut up. <laughs> so I was like, hmm, okay, all right, we'll wait. <laughs> no worries. Um, but I, and, and certainly, yes, Trump's success really did come from 
those who felt that they weren't being listened to. You yeah, know, right. they, they weren't expert, they weren't consulted, they, they felt very disempowered. Mm. Uh, and I think the cause for, I mean, even though everyone was, you know, go away expert, behind the scenes people were still going to doctors, they're still going to dentists, they're still going to accountants, lawyers, all, all of the experts, the day-to-day experts that you see. Mm. Um, and that specialist knowledge is, is there and, and will continue to be there and exist. I think there's almost a science as saviour trope going on here. Okay. Which... Again, another blessing and a curse because if we get it right, hooray science, look at what we can do. But if we don't get it right, then that's the fall is going to be tremendous. And the stakes are incredibly high. And all of the researchers who have been working on vaccines are acutely aware of this. It, It drives them. It keeps them up at night. They are doing the absolute best they can against a viral foe that is, you know, viruses are programmed to evolve and adapt. And, you know, you look at the flu vaccine. Each year we can have a flu vaccine. Yeah, they're all different, aren't they? All different and informed by best guess. Yeah. Uh, And, but it's always ever-changing. Now, in an ideal scenario, one day, as well as the flu jab, you're going to get your annual COVID jab, which will protect you for, for that year. Yep. Or, but right now, it's kind of like, wow, this is this is not the flu. Okay, where to from here? So, yes, um, we are seeing that resurgence of expertise as trusted sources um, because we've seen what happens when non-experts or those who would seek to tear down experts uh, a hand at the wheel and said, okay, let's see what happens. Um, but again, it just comes back to if you, in, as far as you possibly can, empower as many people as you can to be a part of that conversation, yeah. then you you don't have that that us and them, but it's it's us. And there are some among us who know a lot about this topic. They've listened before. So let's listen again. But that's, that's that quality of humility and, um, and engagement of such a way that, you know, yes, I might know more than the rest of you, but I'm, you know, I need to listen and I need to understand because I need to understand what your circumstances are. Definitely. And Mm. I think as soon as you stop listening, it becomes dangerous. Yeah. Really, really dangerous. And ultimately it won't work. Um, So in the Congo, they've been dealing with, I think they're up to their 10th outbreak of Ebola. Um, And one of the things that you know, Medicine Sans Frontiers, they went in there and they were going in and trying to help people deal with this outbreak and they were seeing Ebola as the, their biggest issue and they encountered a huge amount of resistance from, from the local community, not least because they had children who were dying from measles or other very preventable diseases. And right. so they they came in to fix one problem but the community wasn't interested in fixing that problem. That was the least of their concerns, realistically. So they then worked on these other issues and then that allowed them to address the bigger issues. So if you go in there going, I have your answer. Yeah, that's not the answer to the problem that we that we have though. Yeah. You're going to be left standing there holding your big shiny answer with nowhere, <laughs> nothing to do with it. So, yeah, it is just about, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word because I think we've heard it to death this year, but you have to be resilient and reflective and... Empathetic. And empathetic <laughs> and adaptable <laughs> and, and do all of those things. But where to then for, for science communication? We're, you know, this is a complex um, uh, 
context that, mm. that, that science communication is finding itself. Um, but how does it sort of move its way through? How does it sort of continue to, to make progress and to continue to build trust? Is it, is it just that listening? Is it just that empathy? Or is it, is it being, you mentioned the word before, consistency, being reliable, you know, speaking in language that people can understand with symbols that people can relate to? Is it, yep. is it that continual um, accessibility issue um, of one being available but also being un- understood? Absolutely is. And uh, it never fails to amaze me that the the core ingredients for communication success are so simple. And I think because they are so simple, it's kind of like, ah, come on, there's got to be more. <laughs> but it really, <laughs> it can't be that straightforward. So I could be doing myself out of a job by saying this right here and now. But it really is know your audience and that's not just, you know, yes, know who you are talking to and where they prefer to get their information, but you have to know their interests, their social structures, the the influences, the their beliefs, their core values. You really, you have to know them. And the only way that you can know them is by engaging with them and using their inside knowledge to inform what you do. And then once you know your audience, the second step is to know your goal. So if you're talking to these people, what do you actually want them to do, think, remember, feel, understand as a result of your communication? And if you know your audience and you know your goal, the rest is gravy. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of, are you you optimistic? Are you optimistic that it's... um that we can find that that path or that we can sort of join this all up in a way that the communication can be right. It's, it's you know never-ending challenge, really, and if it's not COVID, what is it next? It could be something else. Mm-hmm. But are you optimistic that there is enough of a, an understanding and appreciation of the importance of communication such that we will ultimately be able to move communities effectively over time through um, a greater sense of trust? I think so, yes. And, I mean... COVID has wrought a lot of challenges and changes uh, in societies around the world. But I think one of the, the key things to come out of this whole COVID experience is people are actually thinking about communication in a way that they maybe haven't for some time or a lot more deeply than they have in some time because there was that immediate this is what everybody needs to do. And there was that, you know, cause and effect that was played out in real time. So I think, yeah, there's probably been a lot more reflection on what makes for effective communication and you can more, it's almost been like a year long experiment. Okay. That worked for this people, but not with them. Why was that? Okay. Let's, let's go and have a look there. Mm. So I think, yes, there has been so much learned this year that we, it's been an, an incredible opportunity to actually rethink the whole approach and mindset about communication. And certainly in a lot of the academic literature I've seen and certainly the policy advice and policy communication literature I've seen, people going, oh, facts don't work. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's been a, a far greater recognition of it's not just about telling people things. It's this very intricate, nuanced web that you have to work within. So, yeah, I think if we can't fail to take some of the learnings from this year and then implement them in what we do in future. So in some ways, yes, this has wreaked havoc, but it's also brought great opportunity. 
Well, on that optimistic note, um, Mirren McKinnon, thank you so much for, for coming in to discuss the intricacies, the difficulties, the challenges, but the opportunities as well. Because I think, you know, that simple advice that you've got for people that, you know, to know, to listen, to understand, but not as at that surface level, but to go back to the well again and again and again, because things change. And if you don't change and don't understand where those changes are, you won't be able to to respond. And let's hope that um, the vaccination comes um, or the vaccine comes, um, that it's adopted and we can get through what's been a, a challenging period. But um, thank you so much for coming in and Merry Christmas to you. I hope you have a, a, a very Merry Christmas. And to you, the audience, thank you um, for another great year and thank you so much for uh, uh, coming back to GovComs. It's, we're in our sixth year now and we're sort of dialling up to almost... Um, 280, um, 290 uh, podcasts around government communications, an infinitely fascinating area uh, of examination. And it's great to get the opportunity to speak to um, great academics um, such as Merrin McKinnon today, but other practitioners as well during the year to really understand what your work is and how you're doing it. Um, so yeah, congratulations on all your successes and best of luck as you start to put these programs together. But I think we've got some great advice there for you today as to what you can do um, as we seek to uh, convince more people um, that this may in fact be in their best interests and the community's best interests. But again, thank you for another great year. Thanks for coming back. We'll be back at the same time next year uh, but for the moment it's bye for now you've been listening to the govcoms podcast if you enjoyed this episode be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes 